0: You can be seated. Good morning. So we've been in the book of Mark. One of the the four books of the Bible that we know as the Gospels. And we call it that because it tells us the story of Jesus' time on earth, which is the Gospel. He is the Gospel. And when we look at stuff like this... It's good for us to to, to stop for a minute and, and try to not think like a Western mindset in 2016 person would think when reading passages like this. Otherwise, we'll, we'll gloss over things, we'll miss things totally. It'll, it'll seem not not to have much significance that, that Jesus calls a tax collector, to come follow me, and he gets up and he does it. So it's good that we slow down and we really think about it. So I'm going to ask you this morning to join me in this story, like, like if we could somehow slide into these guys' sandals, if we could feel the dirt under our feet, that we could experience what's going on in this, this Middle East Eastern mindset, first century people, if we could try to feel what they're feeling and think like they're thinking and, and see that this has a lot of audacity. This is, what Jesus is doing is, is scandalous to these people. And we need to see that in order for us to see how audacious and how scandalous His love is for us. And so we're going to get there eventually. It's going to be a journey. And so far we've seen, we've seen a lot so far. In just a chapter and a half, or even less than that, of Mark, we've seen a lot about Jesus. This very fast-paced book of the Bible. And so Christ has constantly demonstrated already that He's powerful. Powerful over all things. Nothing has power over Jesus And already he has amazed people with the way he teaches and and how he's just different about the way he goes about things. They've kicked him out of the synagogue and and he's filling up houses with people that want to hear his teaching. Not just because he teaches well, but because he's doing something no one's done before. He's, He's making himself available to people in a way that no rabbi or teacher has ever done. And he's crushed everything that's had his way, everything that's tried to slow him down, all temptation. He's crushed it, sickness, disease, demons, accusations, everything that's come at him so far, totally crushed it. So Jesus has already demonstrated great power to us, and it's only the beginning. It's only the start of something amazing. And this passage that we talked about last week, he reveals to us our biggest problem is not sickness and disease and And it's not demons and it's not even uh, the the pressures of the world. Our biggest biggest problem, our biggest uh, issue is sin. And no no one has ever come up with anything to do with how to fix sin. Like maybe we can come up with medicine to deal with sickness. But Jesus, unlike anyone else in this passage last week, says your sins are forgiven. He's demonstrated something that's the most scandalous so far. The most surprising, the most shocking, the most offensive thing so far. Jesus says your sins are forgiven. And that's a that's a big deal. So you would think how much more severe can it get? And and today we're going to see how something as simple as calling a tax collector to be a follower is a big deal. And so all these things that we've seen so far have given us this picture of being freed from sin, being freed from the consequences of sin, but all of it is just a shadow of things to come, the great joys of spending eternity with our King. And Mark has done an excellent job of laying that out so quickly for us. And there's more to explore in the depths of this passage today as Jesus calls Levi to be a follower. And so we're going we're gonna to walk through it verse by verse. We're going to see what what the implications are. We're going to see what the meaning is. And hopefully we can really feel the weight of what's happening here. So starting in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. So right away we see Jesus is still about what he's been about teaching the people, being faithful to teach the people. We see that right away, he continues his primary concern of teaching truth. And he does so, like the house they were in, he got too full, so he had to go outside. And he went out by the sea where there's plenty of room for people to gather around so he could continue to teach. But he's doing this intentionally. He walks by the sea, which just about a week ago or so, not for us, but for Jesus, about a week ago or so, he was there. And he called four guys to come and follow him. Remember, Jesse preached this. He called, Peter, his brother Andrew, James and his brother John, fishermen to come and follow him. The only ones so far he's he's actually said, hey, you come follow me Are these four in this area that he is now walking by. And so he knows what's about to come. Verse 14, and he passes by and saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And so we what we know about tax collectors, even in our culture We don't like them. (laughs) Right? Anybody a big fan of the IRS in here? Woo! We know know Ted Cruz is not. I will abolish the IRS. That's not his voice. I will abolish... I can't do it. I think that was more Bill Clinton than that. Anyway. I think Bill Clinton likes the IRS. It doesn't matter. No one likes tax collectors. That's just a thing we know. We know that's the truth. And no one drives onto the interstate and sees a sign that says toll booth ahead and gets excited, right? In Louisiana, we don't get excited that we have to take into account 10% extra at everything we buy. I mean, 9.9%. Why can't they just put that in there, right? Taxes are not something we enjoy because they're taking our money. You look at your pay stub and you see how much money's been removed. It makes you upset a little bit. It doesn't mean. I mean, you just deal with it because that's our country. But It's annoying. We don't like tax collectors. We don't like taxes being taken from us in general because we don't we don't want to lose our money. We like our money. But perhaps in our culture, we can at least have some ease to know that the tax that we pay is, in some part, to benefit the taxpayer, or at the very least, it benefits our fellow American who are in need. So taxes have some, in general, since they have a. Good concept, and so we can find maybe some peace of mind about that. But in Jesus's day, this was not the case. Taxes went to Rome. The, The oppressive military and political ruler of the time was ruling over this area of Galilee, and there was this doofus of a governor named Herod who was kind of in charge. So he got his cut, and then the rest went to Rome. And then these tax collectors were appointed by Rome over certain areas. And so Levi has been appointed and he's a Jew. He's not a Roman. So for Levi to be t- collecting taxes, giving some to Herod and then giving the rest to Rome, is he's a traitor to his people. So he's not just taking people's money, but he's a traitor feeding the oppression. And then the system is is corrupt beyond what we can imagine. It's like the mafia meets the IRS. Right? This is... These, these tax collectors were corrupt and hated by people. And so they would, they would set up their booths wherever, at borders and at, at harbors. And, and Levi is obviously a taxer of the fishermen. Keep in mind, those are the only four people Jesus has called to follow him so far are fishermen. And he's lived there. He's collecting taxes from them. And the taxation of, of these people was draining them of their resources because it was far above and beyond what was necessary Because remember, everybody had to get their cut, and if these tax collectors were going to get money, they had to be corrupt. They had to go beyond what was expected. So what they would do is they would just add taxes to whatever they felt like doing. So you're coming along, you're walking down a road, you've, you've used your whole life, and all of a sudden there's a booth there, and you have to pay to walk on that road. And if you have a cart with you, that's going to be extra. And extra for every wheel you have on your cart. you got an animal, we're going to charge extra for that. How many legs does your animal have? I'm just kidding. I don't think any two-legged animal pulls a cart, ostrich cart. Anyway, Mm -hmm. it was absurd. They even had permission to look through your bags and and decide what they were going to tax. So you're bringing figs in today. Well, it's after the ninth hour on a Tuesday, so we're going to charge you triple. It's whatever they wanted to do. And there was no filter on it. And they had to pay the taxes. And Levi was one of these guys. So the last thing you would expect as Jesus is walking along the sea is for him to stop at this tax collector, this traitor to the Jews, this hated man, this corrupt, evil person, and ask him to follow him. But that's exactly what he does. In verse 14, end of it. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. Like, it's been surprising so far. When he called the first disciples, nobody even knew who this Jesus guy was, really. I mean, he was, people kind of knew from the baptism, but he didn't have a ministry. Nobody was following him yet. He just said, follow me. So it was shocking that these guys would just leave their fishing nets. They would lead their family business, and they would leave their families behind and follow him. Now, maybe Levi's heard about this Jesus. The crowd is following He sees it happening. He knows about what's going on. So maybe it doesn't seem as shocking that Levi would just get up and follow him. And it's very similar. Jesus used very similar language. Follow me is what he said to the first guys. He left out the, I'll make you fishers of men because Levi's not a fisherman. I'll make you a taxer of men. He's already that. So he says, follow me. And this, this phrase, follow, is not just a word in the Greek. It's, it's a phrase. It's, a, it's an official call by a rabbi to a person to, to be my disciple. Come be my disciple. Follow me. Give yourself to me. But there's a very important distinction here because rabbis typically would would use this phrase and for them it meant, come with me and I will teach you how to bind yourself to the Mosaic Law. I will teach you how to live and and do the rituals and and memorize the Scriptures. I will teach you everything you need to know about the law. Jesus is saying, follow me. Bind yourself to me. Belief. Belief. And worship of me, not the law, not performance of the law. Salvation is a person, not a creed or a performance or a ritual. And Jesus, having already said many distinctions, makes something so distinct. Follow me. It changes the game. And discipleship is. It continues to be this theme throughout Mark. And and it continues to reveal itself not as a growing in knowledge and ability to do things, but more clearly in a relationship with Jesus, as worshipers of Jesus, as imitators of our God. And this fellowship with Jesus, this trusting Him, confessing to Him, obeying Him, shaped by Him, changed by Him, that is discipleship. And it begins with this, this phrase that every Jewish boy longs to hear. Follow me. But but Levi would never have expected to hear that phrase. It was probably the furthest thing from his mind. Follow me. Obey me. And to hear Jesus say, not to the law, which you've already deserted as a tax collector, but to me. Concerning this this phrase, follow me, a New Testament professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Robert H. Stein, wrote this. Although the term totalitarian has many negative connotations, the use of this term is an accurate one and describes well the total commitment that Jesus demanded of His followers. On the lips of anyone else, the claims of Jesus would appear to be evident of gross egomania. But for Jesus... He clearly implies that the entire world revolves around himself and that the fate of all men is dependent on their acceptance or rejection of him. The pivotal point of history and salvation, Jesus claims, is himself. To obey him is to be wise and escape judgment, but to reject his word is to be foolish and perish, for his words are the only sure foundation upon which to build. So this claim Jesus is making, follow me, is everything. And for this reason, it's imperative that we see follow me is not a request or suggestion. It's a command. It's our only hope. It's our only sure foundation. We're dead in our sin. We're blind to what is true. We're born unable to choose anything but sin. Children of darkness, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we've been saved. That's what Jesus is saying when He says, follow me. You no longer have to be dead. You can have life. You're no longer just obligated to obedience. You're now free by grace to obey. And to Levi like to the others, like the others did, he responds immediately. He gets up and he follows. And and Luke's writing of this, he says, leaving everything behind, he rose and followed him. So for Levi, this is a call that's that's much bigger than any disciple has to make so far because the others were fishermen. There's always going to be fish to catch. There's always something to go back to. In fact, they do go back to it after Jesus is crucified. But Levi, if he leaves this, he's done. Like it's burning bridges. For him, he's already abandoned his faith. He's already abandoned his family. He's a traitor to his people. He's a tax player. He's hated by everyone. If he leaves this behind, he's given everything up for this. If he leaves this behind, there's nothing else. And it says he responds immediately, gets up, and he follows Now, what's more is Levi is a crook and a traitor. So he's got to be thinking, are you sure? Are you sure? Like, you want me to follow you? He's got to be filled with doubt. But that doesn't stop him from getting up and following. Him. He's got to know that everyone's going to look at him differently. He's not just a common man, a fisherman, or a rabbinical school reject. He's not just that. He's rejected. He's rejected everything. He's the one that's pushed everything away. He's made decisions to be a crook and a swindler and take advantage of people. He's the one pushing his people to poverty and feeding oppression of his people. And he gets up and he follows him. So it's it's almost as if he was blind and now he sees. It's almost like his eyes were open and he saw something that was irresistible. It's like Jesus said, look, and he saw, and there was nothing to hold him in his seat. No doubt, no shame, nothing held him back from giving himself to Jesus, to following Jesus, to binding himself to Jesus. It sounds a lot like what Paul wrote about in in Philippians 3 after explaining all that he was as a Pharisee. He says, In Philippians 3 7 through 11, whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ by the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and in the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and by that and by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. It's like Levi sees everything else is rubbish. And I think I got love the ESV, I think it's an excellent translation but I think it falls short on this word rubbish because it's, I mean, we don't really relate to rubbish. And maybe British people do, or rubbish. I don't know if that's British or not. But, but in, in, this, in the Greek, this word is much more harsh than rubbish. Okay, it's, it's feces, it's dumb. So at the risk of offending someone, he's saying it, all else is crap. It's crap compared to Jesus. This, this is just what the Bible is saying. Paul was getting this across. Everything he's ever gained, all that he's gained for himself, all the stature, all the all the religious things he followed, all the fame he had as a lead Pharisee, was dung. It's a pile of crap compared to Jesus. And we value those things. We think status and money and power and influence are valuable. In America, we value that above everything. In comparison to Jesus, it's worthless. And in a second, in hearing two words, follow me, Levi saw all of that. And he got up and he followed him. And he was so moved by this experience that he invites Jesus to his house. He's like, hey, let's come tell all my friends about this. So, verse 15. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. This is the first time the word disciples has been used in Mark, first of many. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat? With tax collectors and sinners. Because now we see tax collectors are hated. And these sinners, these are the people who are guilty. Like they they are publicly sinning. They're not even allowed full access to the temple because they're known, convicted sinners. And Jesus is reclining with them in this culture. Eating a meal with someone is befriending them, it's accepting them, it's approval of them as people. Now certainly Jesus doesn't approve of their sin because as we saw with Levi, he's calling them out of that. He's calling them to follow him. But he is making a statement that is absolutely intentionally offensive by eating with these sinners. As if calling a tax collector wasn't enough, he surrounds himself with tax collectors and sinners and accepts them as friends. And the Pharisees they, they've kind of progressed a little bit because at first they were just kind of watching from a distance, and then and then last week's passage they they have these thoughts like, "What he can't do that," and Jesus knows what they're thinking and calls them out on it, even though they didn't say a word, which is awesome. And now they're they're stepping up a little more and they're going to these disciples and they're they're asking the disciples and still don't address Jesus, but they ask the disciples, "What's he thinking? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners?" And he's and they, they follow the, the law to the letter. And not only that, but they've developed these, this, this oral law, this oral tradition called the, the Talmud, and they follow it religiously. And they see that, that tax collectors and sinners are unclean subhumans, and you should not associate with them, much less eat with them. Leviticus 10.10 says, you are to distinguish... Between holy and the common. Between the unclean and the clean. This is their law. They they live by this. They follow this. And not only do they not even associate with the common, they would never have a meal with the common, the fishermen. But, But it's completely unheard of, absurd, and absolutely offensive that he would associate and have a meal with the tax collectors and the sinners. And rabbis and their disciples would never do this. So a a big reason people are attracted to Jesus is because he's making himself available to the common people. He's teaching and associating eating with the common people. But this is a huge step forward to eat with people that even the common people would reject. So when they ask this question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Understand they're not curious. They're not like, Oh, maybe he knows something we don't know. They are are trying to discredit him. They are intentionally going after him. In arrogance and in outrage and in disapproval, they're saying, this must not happen. And he wants, the, the Pharisees are getting the disciples to know, look, this is not a guy to follow. He's breaking these laws. And Jesus overhears them and, as usual, responds beautifully. Verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. So Jesus, he's not here. He's not admitting that the scribes of the Pharisees are righteous and the tax collectors are sinners. He's being, he's making an intentionally ironic statement that that you know what's good. You know these are sinners. And you're not with them. He's calling them out on how they're failing to see the purpose of it all. They're totally missing it. Religion says there's good people and there's bad people. The bad people stay over here. The good people come over here. Jesus is saying that's all ridiculous. Everybody's bad. Nobody is worthy. Everyone is sick. Everyone's in need of a needful physician, but he's playing into their way of thinking, and he says, Well, the sick are the ones who need the doctors. You guys got them together. You don't need me. It's beautiful. Jesus is being sarcastic. I so appreciate that. I do. But the Pharisees were much worse than sinners and tax collectors because they're, they're wicked they don't even know it. They're, they have this cloak of respectability and, and, and self-righteousness, thanking God that they're not like those sinners. The Pharisees are missing it altogether, and they're, they're hopeless because they were, they're whitewashed tomb. They look clean on the outside, but, but they're totally dead on the inside. They had morality without holiness. They looked good, but they could never be good. They acted righteous, but they could never be righteous. At the very least, the tax collectors and the sinners had the grace of honesty to admit they need a physician. They need help. They need a Savior. I like the way the New Living Translation says this verse. It loses some of the irony, but it gains clarity. When Jesus heard this, He told them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've not come to call those who think they're righteous for those who know they're sinners. Jesus has come to save those who are aware we need a Savior. The first step toward salvation is understanding you need a Savior. You're sick. We're sick. We're dead. And we need to be brought to life. And only Jesus has that to offer. It's not found in religion. And as the Pharisees are trying to prove this point that Jesus is failing as a rabbi, He's trying to point out to them they're failing as leaders. They're totally missing it. And you obviously see they're sinners. You obviously see they need a Savior. Why are you not with them? Why are you not eating with the sinners? These are questions we need to ask ourselves. Furthermore, you're caught up in your self-righteousness in such a way that you don't even see you need a doctor. You need a physician. You need a savior. And we can draw out a couple applications from all of this. One is supernatural, totally out of our control, but we need to know it. And one is practical, and we need to intentionally apply it to our lives. The supernatural thing is we need a physician for our soul. We have to have a doctor. And we can't forget that we're the tax collector, we're the sinner. We're the Pharisee. And Jesus gives us new identity. So you may not know this, but Levi is Matthew. And we know this because in the book of Matthew, in the book of Luke, they, they call him Matthew. And maybe he had two names and he eventually said, I'm going to start going by Matthew because I don't want to be associated as Levi, the tax collector. But it's also possible that Jesus gave him a new name as he did for others. You're Matthew now. You are a follower of Jesus. You're not who you used to be. He's gone. He's dead. He's left behind. And, and the sinful you is put to death and you can be alive in me. The, the selfish corruption, the, the sickness, the, the need you had for a doctor. Here I am. And for us, as tax collectors, we, we take what we want and we do it because we think we know what's best for us. This is evident in our inability to sacrifice for the mission. It's evident in our selfishness that we struggle with every day. And sometimes we just, whatever, I'm selfish. I'll just do it anyway. Our desire for as much time and money and energy that we can reserve for that Our desire for comfort, to take what we can to get comfortable, to feed our selfishness. That's us as tax collectors. And as sinners, we we live in disobedience and self-indulgence and we see it as insignificant. It's not that big a deal. This is evident in our indifference and apathy towards our actions. Our failure to put standards in our life that would keep us far from sin. Our foolishness and disregarding sinful behavior of others. It's as if we don't believe there's an enemy in the world seeking to destroy us. And as Pharisees, we look to our works as if salvation hangs on them. We look to our actions and our doing and and the way we look and present ourselves to others as if that's where our salvation lies. It's made evident in how we do our, our good deeds and think we're worthy of salvation and how in our failures we, we're shamefully hiding and pretending it's not there. And, it, and we see that we don't share Jesus with sinners. We don't associate with the lowly. And once in a while we'll do a good deed, we'll give some money towards some cause to appease This desire we have to be good, but to to hang out with sinners, to be around them constantly, that's too exhausting, or that's too dirty, or people will think badly of me, or people will make assumptions, and so we're tax collectors, we're sinners, and we're Pharisees in need of a Savior. And Levi writes about this. Matthew writes about this in his telling of this story. There's two distinct differences. One is he calls himself Matthew. And and the second is that he uses a phrase that, that Mark doesn't use. So Matthew 9, 13, he says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the right, not the righteous, but the sinners. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And that's Jesus quoting Hosea 6, 6. It says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So you can go through the motions, you can do these things, but he's telling the Pharisees like we see Jesus constantly offending the Pharisees and and speaking to them harshly. But still, he gives them some advice here. He says, go and think about what this means from your law. Think about what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. He's telling them to go and learn. Go think about this. Steadfast love. That's Jesus demonstrating and calling the Pharisees out on a love that presents itself in mercy and in grace and in faithfulness. That's Jesus saying, here's what it's about. That you are tax collectors. You are sinners. You are Pharisees. You need a physician, you need a savior, and I'm going to show you what that looks like by having this meal by, by being with these people. We're all weak, we're all wicked, we're all sick with this sin, and we need a physician. And every one of us, this is true for this sickness, is a disease called sin, and it's killing us. And Jesus points it out, and He gives us the solution and the gospel. The only distinction Jesus makes is not good and bad. The distinction Jesus makes is proud and humble. Those who don't see their sinner, and those who do. Those who are self righteous and those who admit they need a doctor. And if you're if you're in this first category, his, his, what he says to you is, "I came not to save you. I'm not here for you. If you're proud and self righteous and you think you can save yourself." The gospel does not apply. That's what he's saying. For I came not to call the righteous, but the sinner. So let us, broken and ashamed of it, yes, but let us admit that we're a sinner and find freedom from that shame and find a God who can can mend the brokenness, a doctor who fixes the problem. And by the mercies of God, let us see that in the work of Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been made new creatures. We have been given new identity. And it's all over Scripture, Romans 5, 6-8. through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die, but God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And in 1 Timothy, Paul writes this pastor and gives them this advice. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.12-16 I thank Him and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, might display this perfect patience as an example to those who believe in Him for eternal life. Who believe in Him. follow Him as sinners. And we find that no matter how big of a sinner you think you are, Jesus saves. He calls us to follow. He shows us His goodness and His grace. And with steadfast love, He draws us to follow Him. He calls us to follow Him. We see it's irresistible. We get up And we follow because we see nothing else compares to this. So Jesus sat with these sinners and he ate a meal with them. Like I would long to sit in that room and hear what he has to say to these people. I would long to hear what Jesus is communicating to these sinners and these tax collectors as he teaches them of how they don't have to be ashamed. They don't have to be uh, outcast on the outsides of the temple. They're welcome to follow him. I want to hear what he has to say. No one wrote that down, but I want to know what he's teaching them. Because He knows they're sinners. And He knows that about us. And He went to the cross anyway. He laid down His life anyway. He knew that the people in that room were the reason He would be killed and tortured. The people He was sharing a meal with, inviting into His life, the people He was befriending, are the reason He had to come in the first place. They're the reason He had to endure the cross. And He shared a meal with them. He asks them to follow him. Your failures don't surprise them. They've not caught him off guard. They don't push him away. They draw him near. Unlike a doctor who waits for the patient to come to him, Jesus has come after us. He's come to the center. He knows you and he loves you. Tim Keller says this. I didn't put this quote in the slides because I just decided to share it today. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is what it's like to be loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from putting on an act. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and it fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw our way. To be known as a sinner and loved anyway. It's terrifying, but it's how God loves us. So that's our supernatural need. And then practically, Jesus has shown us as a role model what it looks like to live on mission. He sat down with sinners, He wasn't wasn't afraid what people would think, He didn't fear the temptation of joining in on the sin. He was always and faithfully pursuing sinners in his life. And and he was welcoming and compassionate like no other teacher had ever been. And he didn't affirm their sin in the process. He called them out of it. He called them to repentance. And he's done the same for us. And having experienced this reconciliation, we can then demonstrate as ministers of reconciliation what it looks like to call people to repentance and love and steadfast love to go to the sick and the needy and the sinners and say, look, here's the hope to be a beggar who found bread and bring it to the hungry. Jesus showed us, he modeled for us clearly what discipleship looks like to ask the sinners to join us in salvation. And here's what's incredibly obvious but miserably difficult about this. If we're going to live on mission, We have to befriend lost people. Like we know that. We want to do that. But we're not. Like I can think about the lost people in my life. How many of them I I call friend. Like they're actually my friend. I hang out with them regularly. I want to be with them. I invite them over. I, I find them entertaining. How many of those can I count my life? I'm embarrassed by that. I don't know. And, and I, I would guess the same is true for most of us. We surround ourselves with Christians or at least people that claim to be Christians. who act right. And we live our lives knowing everyone needs the gospel. Our, Christians, our Christian brothers and sisters need the gospel to encourage them to find hope. And lost people need the gospel. We would, we would just choose, or at least this is true for me, it's easier to be the pastor, to just encourage the saints, to equip the saints, than to go out of my way And sacrifice and realize that it's not my life I live. i got to live for Jesus and hang out with sinners. When I say it out loud, standing up here, it's so dumb. Because I know the goodness of Jesus. I've tasted and I've seen it's good. And I know there's freedom in it. And I long for lost people to be saved. This is true. I want that. Jesus showed me how to do it. Invite them over. Have a meal with them. Go to where the lost people are. Sit down with them. Don't be afraid of what people are going to think. Don't be afraid of the accusations that are going to come your way. It's going to be offensive to some people. Yes, do it. The gospel is offensive. And you'll be judged by the company you keep, sure. But invite them into your life because the sick people need a doctor. And it's gonna require sacrifices. You're gonna to have to give up some of your reputation. You're gonna to have to give money to this. You're gonna to have to, you're going to have to come together with believers and find encouragement. Also, if only there was some structure, something put together to provide all those things. Oh, wait. The church exists for this purpose. There's a mission to bring the gospel to the lost world. And so the time you can sacrifice, we've we've given you structure to sacrifice that time for. The the money you can pour into this, we've given the opportunity to worship God and give to this mission because nothing else matters. Nowhere else you put your money matters as much as giving to this mission that lost the sick, the sinners, could get the gospel, could live in the gospel. And we're going to need encouragement. You're foolish to think you could do this on your own. Jesus was not alone in this. The first thing He did was call disciples to follow Him you're foolish to think you don't need your brothers and sisters. So we're not alone in this. We find in our DNA groups, we find in our missional community, we find as we gather together the equipping of the saints, the proclamation of God's word, the joining together to find encouragement and what is true, to go and make disciples. Everything we need is here in the word of God. Everything we need is found in what he's provided for us. He's blessed us with himself. He's blessed us with family to be on mission with. We have all we need. Why are we not eating with sinners? Why are we not going after the lost? Why are we not putting ourselves out there, risking it all, getting up and leaving everything else behind, realizing this call to follow Jesus means giving up everything. We don't live our life for ourselves anymore. We're His. We belong to Him. We've been crucified to ourselves and we're alive. And the life we now live in the body is for Jesus. He gave himself so that we'd stop living for ourselves, but we'd live for God. It's not about us. What are we doing? Levi, Matthew understood this, and he gave up everything. Jesus has given us all we need. He's modeled for it so we can practically say, this is where I can sacrifice. This is where I can put it. It's all before us. So let's begin to invite people to, Into our lives, and and very simply, challenge yourself right now to just ask some lost person to a meal. Have breakfast with me. Come get coffee. Let's get lunch. Come over to my house and have dinner with my family. Just do it. Pick a day in the week, pick a day in the month. Just do it. And let us be a people who see we befriend sinners. Like Jesus preferred sinners. Because we were once sinners. And we needed a Savior. And they need a Savior. That's the point of the church. He left us here for this mission. And together, let's be on mission. And, and don't just invite them over to eat and check the box and now we're done. Engage in conversation. And some of the easiest ways to do that is what we've laid before you in in the beginnings of our missional communities. Share your story. Ask them their story. Get to know them. Befriend them. Be their friend. Find out interests. And at some point, you're going to see these connections because your life has intersected the gospel story. Your story has intersected the story of God. And at some point, you're going to see these connections, these opportunities to draw them in, to see they need to intersect the story of God they need to see there's hope where they feel hopeless they can be brought back to wholeness in Christ it's simple let us lay down ourselves and give ourselves to this so some questions that I want you to ask yourself in DNA and missional community to consider these things is is what kind of dialogue do you have with unbelievers in your life right now And where can you find unbelievers to invite into your life? And then who will you invite into your life? Do you intentionally seek to show hospitality to unbelievers? And how can you maintain firm convictions while also showing love to people who engage in different kinds of sinful activities? And I think that one's... Very important and we don't think about it enough. How can we maintain our convictions and hold fast to what we know is good while still showing people that we love them and engaging in different kinds of activity? They're off they're being sinners as sinners are. How do we engage them and, and do life with them without joining in, in sin? Because we're not Jesus. We will be tempted and we will fail. That's why we need each other. Together with the body of Christ alone, we're, we're vulnerable. And it's It's foolish to not set standards about things. Even simple things like like drinking alcohol. It's not sinful to drink alcohol. But it's totally foolish to have no standards when it comes to drinking alcohol. It's foolish. Paul says that everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Not everything is helpful. If we don't put standards in our life for these things that can very easily in our culture be seen as sinful activities, we don't have clear standards set. It's foolish. So how do we love people who are engaging in different kinds of sinful activities without falling into sin ourselves? It's important that we hold dear this, this opportunity to, to present Christ to the world, to, for the church to be Christ to the world and not give in to sin. All right, so I'm want you. i going to send these on, on the city. I'll make sure people know what these questions are. I want you to really think about these things, but consider all that you've heard. Consider the life of Matthew. And how he gave up everything to follow Jesus. And let us give ourselves to this. And let's really buy into this. We planted this church so that we could be on mission. Let's not lose lose that idea. We're on mission. Life is mission. If we're making about anything else, we're missing it. Just like the Pharisees. Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you that It can be so rich and so moving and and, and in its narrative form, it can be so engaging that we could see what you were communicating to these people thousands of years ago and how it can apply to us today. I praise you that we don't have to try hard to make it apply, but it just so easily connects to us. And I pray that with this understanding, we would feel the conviction to repent that we would give our lives to You as we once claimed to do, that we would see there's areas that we're we're hiding, there's things we're failing to sacrifice, there's things we just don't want to give up, but You would show us how good and gracious and great and glorious You are, and that we'd find it to be irresistible, and we'd get up, and we'd follow You. Thank You for the Gospel. Thank You for Jesus. Amen.